you know, we've known that bacteria have innate immune systems since, you know, the middle of the 20th century, but it's only been since 2007 when the first experiment proved that CRISPRs form a whole new category of adaptive immune systems, but are equally complex to some of the intricate adaptive immune systems we think about in mammalian cells, like, of course, antibody-based detection of foreign pathogens. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, and thanks for joining me for episode 32 of our podcast. It's really nice to be with you again. If this is your first time listening in, then welcome to our show. So whether you're a scientist or a non-scientist, you've probably recently heard the term genome editing or gene editing. Genome editing is a group of technologies that's allowing scientists to change the DNA sequence in the genome of a living organism. Now, scientists have really known how to do that, at least how to randomly input DNA into a genome, since about 1972 when that process was first demonstrated. So why has genome editing become so popular lately? Well, part of the reason for that is that newer genome editing systems are allowing scientists to make targeted DNA changes at very specific sites within the genome. So scientists can now knock in or knock out specific genes in the genome. Another reason for all the excitement is the discovery of the CRISPR-Cas system, which was selected by Science Magazine as the breakthrough of the year in 2015. So today we're going to discuss the biology and the impact of CRISPR and genome editing with Dr. Sam Sternberg. Sam is Assistant Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biophysics at Columbia University. And his research focuses on the mechanism of nucleic acid targeting by CRISPR-Cas and on the development of CRISPR-Cas systems for genome engineering applications. So Sam, thanks for joining me on the Illumina Genomics podcast. I've been doing this podcast for almost two years now. And the first podcast that we did was with a person by the name of Ramona Stepanowskis, who's an expert in single cell sequencing of microbial strains. So in that context, understanding microbial biology, he actually mentioned something called CRISPR-Cas, which was identified in microbial biology, and that's why microbial biology is so important. So all the way back to the first podcast we did, I, I heard the term CRISPR-Cas9, and actually every, almost every podcast I've done since then has made reference to genome editing and CRISPR-Cas9. So I think it's great that we finally are doing a podcast on genome editing, and I'm, I'm here with you to talk about it. So before we get into some of the details of CRISPR, I thought maybe we could start out by you describing your background and the kind of work that you do in genome editing. Sure. Well, actually, you would say my new lab is kind of straddling the boundary between using CRISPR as a gene editing tool, but also studying CRISPR-Cas biology in bacteria. And, you know, CRISPR actually comes from very basic research experiments aimed at understanding how bacteria defend themselves against viruses. And I think mining this natural biodiversity has, of course, uncovered tools like Cas9, but a whole slew of other CRISPR-associated tools. So I think it's kind of a treasure trove for new biotechnologies, but also a really promising area for developing new kinds of tools to either probe into eukaryotic biology or think about actually developing tools to treat or address diseases. My background, so I did my PhD in Berkeley with Jennifer Doudna, 
I then spent a year writing a book on the discovery and development of CRISPR-based gene editing tools, which was kind of a fun project that took me outside of the lab for a while. Then I worked at a biotech company in West Berkeley called Caribou Biosciences, developing CRISPR tools as well. And then I just arrived at Columbia earlier this year in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biophysics. I thought that maybe since we're going to talk about CRISPR-Cas9 and, and, and maybe we'll talk about related mechanisms, could you kind of go over a, a layman's view of what CRISPR-Cas9 is? What is CRISPR-Cas9? What does it do? Sure. So maybe we'll start in bacteria. You know, bacteria are constantly under attack by viruses. These are bacteria-specific viruses. And so CRISPR-Cas9 is one method of defense, and it relies on kind of two major components, three if we're going to be technical about it, but it's a Cas9 enzyme, which is a protein molecule, together with a guide RNA. In bacteria, there's actually two RNAs that come together. The technology has simplified it by making them a single RNA. The RNA essentially acts like GPS coordinates to deliver that Cas9 enzyme to specific sequences in viral DNA. And the Cas9 is a weapon that the cells use to cut the DNA in half, and that triggers eventual degradation of the rest of the viral genome and thus protects the cell from the infection. Interesting. So in bacteria, this is acting as an adaptive immune system. You know, we've known that bacteria have innate immune systems since the middle of the 20th century, but it's only been since 2007 when the first experiment proved that CRISPRs form a whole new category of adaptive immune systems that are equally complex to some of the uh, intricate adaptive immune systems we think about in mammalian cells, like, of course, antibody-based detection of foreign pathogens. As a technology, then, CRISPR-Cas9 is using that same Cas9 enzyme, the same kind of guide RNA, but now using this to target specific genes in other cell types. Those could be in human cells, plant cells, animal cells, where the initial cut is now the trigger for subsequent repair by the cell. Because um, unlike bacteria, eukaryotic cells have a wide range of different repair pathways. And so that initial cut in DNA can trigger various types of repair that can be to some extent controlled by researchers to install permanent genetic changes that might remove a mutation, that might knock out a gene if you wanted to study the effects of that gene knockout. Or, you know, from there, it's kind of in the last five years, the toolkit has expanded to inserting genes, deleting whole blocks of genes, potentially removing entire chromosomes. It's kind of really wow. exciting to see this initial proof of concept experiments using Cas9 to make edits now expand into this real impressive toolbox. So in what sense is it a game changer? Why is everyone so excited about this technology? What does it allow scientists to do that we couldn't do before? I think it's really, you know, improved our ability to address the fundamental question of how the genotype connects to the phenotype, how the genes in an organism explain the resulting traits that could be, you know, a plant or an animal species. It could be a culture of cells, how they lead to a cancer phenotype. You know, previously there were more indirect ways of making that connection we can do. I mean, I think sequencing has been absolutely instrumental in assembling different variants that you can now connect to those phenotypes. Companies like 23andMe or Illumina that are making, you know, sequencing or SNP detection, you know, growing huge libraries of data sets where we can now begin to make those inferences, starting with just the variants. I think that's been absolutely powerful. 
But now we can add on to that the use of CRISPR to introduce particular variants in a cell type of interest in an animal model and directly test the hypothesis that a given mutation or gene variant is associated with some phenotype. So, you know, previously a lot of labs might not have attempted that kind of an experiment. Even though gene editing preceded CRISPR, it was just much too difficult for an average laboratory to think about using a tool to make a specific knockout or make a particular mutation in the cell type of interest they're studying. Now with CRISPR, I mean, you can get the reagents from AdGene for 60 bucks and use standard molecular cloning to, you know, retune the system to target your gene of interest. And a couple of days later, you're transfecting and knocking out your gene. I mean, So it opens it up to everybody. Yeah, I mean, now, you know, it's, I think the phrase democratizing gene editing has hear, become pretty popular. Yeah, I hear that for sequencing too. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's, it's very true. Following up on one of the things you said, you were talking about how next-gen sequencing or, or NGS is used in the context of, of genome editing. And so from what I've read, I've understood that the genome editing technology is not 100% effective in terms of getting the mutation you want in exactly the right place. So is NGS used then to kind of QC that whole process to make sure that you're knocking out the right thing, that you're not, not knocking out the wrong thing? Can you describe a little bit how NGS fits into this, this entire workflow? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, being at Caribou Biosciences was great for me because as a PhD student, I didn't use NGS at all. Although there are many projects where I thought, even as a biochemical project, NGS could have changed the way I went about an experiment. Then I come to Caribou and they had a really, really elegant and kind of well-developed platform or pipeline for using NGS as the readout for gene editing outcomes. And I think, you know, Caribou published a really nice paper in 2014 highlighting the fact that the outcomes of a double-strand break introduced by CRISPR-Cas9 are quite heterogeneous, and they're actually target-specific. So you can make a break in gene X, and that will be repaired in a certain, you know, range of ways. But gene Y and gene Z will be repaired in different ways. Interesting. And understanding the spectrum of repair outcomes really requires a sequencing-based approach that tells you across thousands of different alleles, thousands of different cell populations from that one editing experiment, how do different cells repair that break in different ways? And getting the kind of statistics that are made possible when you're sequencing hundreds of thousands or millions of reads per experiment, I think that was a game changer in really understanding the diversity of those repair outcomes. And so both for addressing that question, for looking at the breakdown between the two major classes of repair, one is kind of error-prone, non-homologous end joining, where you kind of just glue the ends back together with short insertions or deletions, versus what's been much more difficult to improve the efficiencies of homology-directed repair where you use a template to kind of coax the cell into repairing that site using a synthetic template provided by the scientist. So now NGS has been really, really effective at screening efficiencies of these two repair pathways across a wide range of different parameters where you can investigate how the repair template is delivered. Is it single-stranded DNA, double-stranded DNA? You know, I think the leading labs are using NGS as the readout. We're actually just getting started planning NGS experiments for similar purposes in my lab. And it's been interesting as, as a new lab. I mean, we can do things in a initially easier or let's say less expensive way with flow or with 
Sanger sequencing, <laughs> but we've realized from day one, you know, this is what we need to work towards. And I think now we, we have a, a pipeline and we've got a sequencing center on campus, uh, the Columbia Genome Center. So we're excited to to make sure that we have this pipeline in my lab going as well. That's awesome. I realize you've been here only since February, right? And you're starting to build your NGS component of your lab. Has that been challenging? How has that gone, kind of putting this NGS pipeline into place? I think the challenging part will be just the downstream analysis. Of course, there are a lot of... The beautiful thing about CRISPR is that there's been so much work done that you can find any number of, of methods papers out there you know, code that researchers have made available to the community to analyze editing using NGS. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We're going to definitely tap into what's been done by other labs. And I have a lot of colleagues in the in the field. So I think what's nice is we don't need to start from scratch. We can kind of build on tools that are already out there. That's awesome. One thing you mentioned that was interesting to me is that you, you've talked about the fact that there are actually multiple CRISPRs, not mm, just one. A mm-hmm, mm-hmm. couple questions related to that is there are additional CRISPRs, but are there additional systems other than CRISPR-Cas9 that prokaryotes use for this kind of... So I guess what I'm getting at is there are there other genome editing technologies outside of CRISPR-Cas9 yes. oh. that, that people are utilizing? Absolutely. So first of all, before CRISPR, there were two major platforms called ZFNs and Talons. Those are protein-based gene editors. I think CRISPR has made this process much easier to use and cheaper, as we talked about, because it uses this RNA guide. So one of the exciting things was actually the work I did at Caribou was developing an entire new class of CRISPR systems that hasn't been used before for engineering or editing in eukaryotic cells. And that comes back to this cascade complex I mentioned So I think what's exciting is that the power of CRISPR is the use of this RNA guide because that makes the targeting and the reprogramming massively more flexible than the precursor technologies. And bacteria have evolved many ways of using an RNA guide using different kinds of proteins. One is Cas9, one is Cas12, another is Cascade, and in fact, there are many others. And so I think what's been exciting for someone like me is to both think about the biochemical mechanism that guides all of these different systems, and then how we can harness different features of different systems for different kinds of applications. That brings me to my next question, which is the application. So what are some of the applications where CRISPR technology is used? And I think when we talk about that, before the mics were on, we were talking about pre-implantation genetic screening and the possibility of using genome editing technology in humans. So when you talk about the applications, I think always people, it, it, the, the discussion always comes back to, should we be using this technology in humans? As, as Is it ethical? So I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. Sure. You know, I think using a tool like CRISPR as a way to reverse disease in patients living with disease is absolutely something we should aggressively try to develop. I think there's a real promise in this changing the way we think about treating certain kinds of diseases, where we might not have to administer a drug or enzyme replacement for the rest of a patient's lifetime, but we could think about editing cells in the affected organs once for lifelong reversal of the symptoms because we're actually removing the causative mutation. So I don't think there's any major ethical concerns over the use of a tool like CRISPR as a medicine in living patients. You know, we're going to have to deal with issues like access and cost and, and I think regulation with, and regulation and safety. I mean, these are, I don't want to make it seem like this is going to be easy, 
But, you know, I think this is a really, really promising area for the real world use of CRISPR to improve society. You know, thus far, we've talked mostly about genetic disease, but in fact, CRISPR's already made its way into the clinic in the context of cancer immunotherapy, which was actually awarded a Nobel Prize earlier this week, where CRISPR can um, improve the genetic engineering of immune cells to make them better at fighting cancer in the body. So this is something where in China, clinical trials have been underway for over a year now. Wow. And they are slated to begin in the US, I think end of this year, maybe next year. Where the kind of controversies really become much more urgent is the specter or prospect of the use of CRISPR in human embryos. Right. I think in, you know, in the early days of CRISPR, we and, and many others realized that CRISPR is going to make the prospect of potentially introducing changes in embryos much more attainable than, than was possible earlier. And so um, we actually put out a white paper in Science in 2015 calling for a pause on any uses of CRISPR in embryos until the scientific community and importantly, you know, people outside of the scientific community could really come together to begin discussing the ethical, societal, regulatory, moral considerations surrounding this kind of very profound idea of rewriting genes in a future individual in a way that would not just affect that resulting individual, but all of their offspring as well. Because of course, if you make changes in an embryo, the germ cells of that resulting individual will inherit the same changes, which means you've now made, you know, edits that will be forever passed on in that lineage of humans. I think this is a topic that I speak about often when I'm talking to kind of lay audiences, because I think it's a real application that certain people think we should move aggressively on. Other people think that's a red line we should never cross. And I guess who's going to decide that? And yeah. how is that going to be addressed and received by society? I think it's a really important topic. I totally agree with you. And I think that the, these are questions that are not going to be answered by scientists. Ultimately, it's going to be, Absolutely. It's going yeah. to be voters, it's going to be lawmakers. So those are the people making decisions. And following up on that point, I just want to talk a little bit about a popular science book that you co-wrote with with Jennifer Doudna, because I think it's really important, and, and not just in genome editing, but I think overall, as these technologies impact more and more in people's lives, everybody's going to have to understand at least some basic level what these technologies entail. And this book that you, you co-authored is called uh, Crack and Creation, Gene Editing, and the Unthinkable Power to Control Evolution which is, this is an awesome title, by the way. <laughs> not, not our, I'll say that was the publisher's choice. I, I think it's very attention-grabbing, so yeah, they did a good awesome. job on that. I read that uh, in the New York Review of Books, it was called Required Reading for Every Concerned Citizen. You're obviously a research scientist, and you're, you're doing work in the lab. So what drew you to taking a year off and writing a popular science book about CRISPR? And has that process of... So, you know, spending time and writing this material for for a general audience has that like influenced the way that you look at communicating science more broadly? I mean, I think communicating science more broadly was the motivation behind doing that project, and I was also inspired by my love for science nonfiction. I I have more books on my bookshelf than I should because I really should be reading more science papers, but I have a love for reading about science and other topics well outside my own expertise. And so the chance to contribute something of my own together with Jennifer on a topic near and dear to my own heart was, was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. 
And I really do think it's important to make sure that people can access information on new technologies in a way that doesn't go over their heads or hopefully doesn't go over their heads. You know, just last night, I presented to a group of about 50 New York City public school teachers. And I have to say, I mean, that's that was a, a receptive audience that was almost more fun to present to than an audience at a scientific conference because you can really see how they're understanding a completely new type of technology. But then we had a very vigorous discussion and debate on things like gene-edited foods versus GMOs, on whether or not we should be editing our own DNA in a permanent, heritable fashion. And I think it's really rewarding for me to, to communicate science in a way that, that teachers, that students, high school students, even younger students can understand and coming back to the kind of ethics around editing embryos, I mean, I think these are issues that will affect all of us. And so a starting, an absolutely essential starting point is that, that people outside of the ivory tower of scientists can even understand the technologies that are impacting these new ideas. It's really interesting. And I, I totally agree with that concept. And I, I think the way that even scientists, even technical experts, the way that we consume information is changing a lot. I mean... When I went to graduate school, we didn't have Twitter. And so if you wanted to keep up with the literature, you literally had a paper subscription to a journal and you scan the table of contents or then eventually you would get an automatic email. But now you have Twitter. So if you want to keep up on literature, you connect with a bunch of people and you'll get tweets on what you know the big articles, the big conferences coming out are. So... I think as scientists, retooling our, our our set of tools and how we communicate our research, I think is really going to be critical. And I think that's that's why your book is is a is a really good it's a really good step in that direction. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up Twitter because I my own tweeting has gone down since I started here because I feel too busy to tweet myself, but I do still try to check in every day or every other day because I constantly see exciting new research coming out that it just doesn't otherwise come across my radar. Right. And I think Twitter is fantastic for that. The network of people I follow has been instrumental in, in kind of exposing new areas of interest to me. And yeah, I think it, it gives greater access to other ideas and, and other audiences. So it's, it's, it's been really great for that. So last question I have for you is, is I'd like to know a bit about what you think the future of genome editing holds. What are the technologies that you think are really going to continue to transform in a couple of years, where do you see genome editing? What are the big applications? So just spend a few minutes talking about the future of genome editing. So I think one area that's going to be really exciting is continuing to prove the efficiency of gene editing outcomes. And in particular, the more precise form of repair known as homology-directed repair. Because for certain therapeutic applications, it's still actually quite challenging, especially in some cell types, to make precise changes where the double-strand break introduced by CRISPR is edited in the way that is required for reversing some disease phenotype. So that might be improving the, the delivery of these donor templates or new methods for inserting genes into the genome in a target-specific and accurate manner. Another exciting technology, I would say, is using Cas9 in a different way for what's now called base editing. So this is work that has been pioneered by a couple individuals, one of them, David Liu at Harvard, but using Cas9 not to make a double-strand break in DNA, but actually bringing more precise editing enzymes to particular regions of the genome that can literally convert one 
type of base, one type of DNA letter into another, which gives you just more exquisite control over the types of changes being made. And that's possible currently? That's possible currently. I mean, that's that's accelerated a lot in the last couple of years since um, the first two papers came out a few years ago. Wow. So that's a really exciting area. I think also we talked a little bit before we started recording on genome-wide screening. Right. The use of CRISPR to actually interrogate the function of thousands or tens of thousands of genes in a single experiment using pooled libraries of guide RNAs. So this is, I think, a really, really huge opportunity to use these kinds of genome-wide approaches to interrogate diseases or different biological pathways. And you know, this comes back to the critical use of NGS as a readout, because now if you're going to make genome-wide knockouts and use libraries of guide RNAs, you need a way to deduce what your effects were in a pooled set of cells that have thousands of different changes, different guide RNAs. And so NGS has been instrumental in allowing these kinds of libraries and libraries of knockout cells to be interrogated. And then for me, I think one really exciting area is going back to the biology, continuing to understand the diversity of different CRISPR systems, but also going beyond CRISPR and understanding other new immune systems that have been recently discovered in bacteria, how they work how they recognize viral DNA and whether understanding some of these uncharacterized enzymes and new flavors of immune systems might reveal new kinds of tools that we haven't even touched yet. That's terrific. Sam, I really appreciate you spending the time to discuss CRISPR with us. I think our listeners have a, a much better understanding of genome editing and and how it will play a role in, in their future in a number of different applications. So thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. I think it's so cool that studying mechanisms of immunity in bacteria led to the discovery of the CRISPR-Cas genome editing system, which is now used in animal systems and plant systems, you name it. CRISPR-Cas has really opened up genome editing to a wide array of scientists and improved their ability to connect genotype with phenotype. NGS approaches can also help scientists to understand the diversity of CRISPR-Cas genome editing outcomes across a wide variety of cell types and alleles. If you're interested in reading more about CRISPR-Cas and the societal impact of genome editing, check out Sam's cool book, A Crack in Creation, Gene Editing and the Unthinkable Power to Control Evolution. It's available from Amazon.com, and whether you're a scientist or a non-scientist, I highly recommend it. If you like today's show, please, please, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. And be sure to join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Josh Weiner. Josh is Professor of Biology and Associate Director at the Iowa Neuroscience Institute. And we'll be discussing his research in neuronal differentiation and neural circuit formation. We're also going to discuss Josh's recent journey from cell biology into the world of NGS here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Podcast.